Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic or a sleeved coat as we know that it really means. It, uh, verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Whoa, I've had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Well, then his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. Then he said to him, I will go. And he said to him, Go now, and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring them word back to me. Or bring word back to me. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, then he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. And then the man said, Well, they've moved from here. For I heard them say, Let's go up to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us go up and kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, Reuben the oldest, the firstborn, Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is here in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. And so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. And their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is this? Is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
Now Reuben returned to the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Or literally, what am I to do? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it and see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And so Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Well, then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So much for um, obeying your father, huh? <laughs> this is how Joseph's story begins. 17 years old, sent by his brothers, sold by his brothers in, into slavery, and for doing nothing but having dreams. Nothing but obeying his father. He gets nailed for doing nothing but the right thing. Now I want you to notice something because we're going to go back and, and kind of pick our way through this whole passage. But before we do, something very interesting. Approximately 25% of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Joseph. More time, more words are given to Joseph's life than any other person, Abraham included, in the book of Genesis. It's interesting to me that there are there's some insights, and I want you to see these as we begin tonight. You may want to jot these down if you're note-taking. Number one, Joseph's story is a remarkable contrast. His story is a remarkable contrast. We see back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible tells us that God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. What's interesting to me is that God spends four verses in the entire book of Genesis explaining the cosmos. Four verses. And yet he spends nearly a fourth of the book talking about little Joe. Four verses on the cosmos and a fourth of the book on an individual, on a person. You know, the things that interest us don't necessarily interest the Lord and oftentimes vice versa. The things that are interesting to God are not always the things that are so interesting to us. We very easily and very quickly look out at the vast sea of humanity and find ourselves uninterested. But talk about the heavens, the universe, the cosmos, and mankind is fascinated. We're thrilled by it. We're overwhelmed by its scope, by its grandeur, by its majesty. People spend entire lives studying the heavens, looking at the cosmos. But here's a hint as to what thrills the Lord. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, writes David, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? David says, man, when I look out at the vastness of all things, it just makes me feel tiny and small and insignificant. Because I look at all this wonderful stuff and this amazing creation and go, wow, man, I wish I could understand how this all works. 
But it goes on in Psalm 8.5 to say, Yet you have made man a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. He says, I don't understand. All of this out here, and you take thought of me. All of this wonder of creation, and you think about, you visit me, Lord. While we're mindful of the universe, God is mindful of the you. While we're looking at the stars, he's looking at people, individuals. While we're overwhelmed by scientific discovery, God is looking into the heart of individuals, as he is even tonight, each one of us, one person at a time. If nobody showed up tonight but you, God would be here for you. And God would be meeting you here. And that amazes me. It's a remarkable contrast. You look at four verses on the entire cosmos, but a fourth of the book on one person. It tells you that Joseph is significant, but it also gives you a clue as to who God focuses on, what's important to the Lord. Second thing to note is that Joseph's story is a righteous case in point. I mentioned this on Sunday, but Joseph is one of two people in the Bible. Two people who are not, whose sins are literally not recorded anywhere. The other one's Daniel. Daniel and Joseph. We read their life stories and we were hard-pressed to find any sin listed in Scripture. Everybody else, there's plenty of messes in their lives. Moses, Elijah, of course Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as, as we've seen, but, but not Joseph. Now that's not to say that Joseph didn't sin because all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But we just can't find it listed or noted in Scripture. It's funny to me how many Bible commentators imply sin in Joseph. They, they want to find it. They call him a tattletale. Or they say, well, he was prideful. But the Bible, the biblical passages, scriptures, they just don't back that up. We see in Joseph an example of a man who is Godward in his thinking. And to me, it's incredibly encouraging. We talk sometimes about how when we look at, say, a person like Moses this great leader of Israel, and we see his sin, we're encouraged by it. Because we realize even a great man of God sins. And so in my sin, it's encouraging to know that even though I fail, so did Moses. But there's a flip side to encouragement as well. And that's that we need to be encouraged by people who do it right. By people who are holy. By people whose lives are set apart. We need to be able to look at a man like Joseph and say, you can live a holy life. Not a perfect life. Nobody can live a perfect life, but you can live a holy life. A life that's set apart. A life that literally is different. Joseph is that kind of person. Yeah, he failed. Yeah, he sinned. I'm sure he did. But what you see in the life of this man is holiness. Paul puts it this way. Philippians 4.8. Talking about Godward thinking in the way you live. Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Dwell on these things. Focus your life on these things. And then he goes on to say, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We need that. We need righteous cases in point, like Joseph. People that we can look to to encourage us that, yes, holiness is something we can aspire to. Living a holy life is something that we are called to. Again, we can't be perfect. But, man, we can sure shoot for holiness. We can seek to live that type of life. Well, how do we do that? How in the mess of the world we live in do we live holy, good lives? How do we do it? 
by thinking on the things which we've learned and received and heard and seen in people like in Joseph. Sometimes even more so than Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect ultimate example. But sometimes we look at Jesus and say, but he was God. He was God in the flesh. But when I see someone like Joseph who was not God at all, but a human being, frail and able to fail just like me, it's very encouraging to see him do so well in the eyes of the Lord. Well, third thing to note, Joseph's story is a riveting comparison. It's a riveting comparison to Jesus Christ. Because in Joseph's story, we see another beautiful type of Jesus. Now, I've got to give you a quick biblical note, because we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to see several things, and you need a whole list of things, in which Joseph's life parallels or compares to the life of Christ. But understand, and this is important for Bible students, as we make comparisons or look for types or pictures in Scripture, we need to be sure that Scripture is guiding us. We need to not take Scripture and allegorize or topologize anything we want. Take it and make it say what we want it to say or bend it to fit our own frame of reference or our worldview. That's an inappropriate use of the word. However, we can see very clear types of Jesus, very clear pictures in Scripture. But we need to let the Scripture guide us as we do that. In the case of Joseph, the New Testament does not specifically mention him as a picture or type of Jesus. As the New Testament does mention others. Okay? But it doesn't mention Joseph that way. Furthermore, Joseph's stature is different than that of his father Jacob's. Joseph never once talks directly to the Lord as Jacob and Isaac and Abraham did. He never once has that, that kind of interaction with God where God gives him or restates the covenant or says, Joseph, you and your people will have this land. And as a matter of fact, Joseph is not even in the line of Jesus. That line would come through Judah, whose very interesting story we'll read about in chapter 38. And I don't even want to go there. We're going to next week. But we don't have to tonight. It's, an, it's one of those tough stories. You read it and you go, why is that in the Bible? Lord, we were doing so well with Joseph, but we'll get there. But the thing about Joseph here, and you need to understand this, is that his life story is so full of riveting comparisons to the life and ministry of Jesus that we cannot call them coincidental. Now, I was meticulous through this week as I studied chapter 37 to compare these things and to see that these comparisons were legitimate. And I want you to challenge me on it tonight and read and follow along. As we go through, question everyone in your own mind. Don't raise your hand and go, oh, Rick, I think you're wrong there. Tell me afterwards, okay? But follow along and let's be careful as we read and study the scripture. I want to pray before we get back to verse 1. Father, bless us in our time of study tonight. Bless us as we seek to work through your word. God, we don't want to read into it. We want to read out of it. We don't want to make up things or overlay our thoughts or our feelings onto the page. We want the page to come into our thoughts and feelings. We want your words, Lord. We ask for your words to penetrate us. God, you said your word is like a sharp two-edged sword that penetrates all the way to bone and marrow. And I pray tonight, God, that your word would get into our bones. That, that it would get into our bones as a fire that wants to be let back out. Father, bless us with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 again, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. 
Now these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now that phrase, bad report, I mentioned Sunday, is evil report. I don't know what kind of evil you can get into out pasturing sheep. I don't want to guess. But they got into some trouble. They were doing wrong things, and Joseph told his father. Folks, I think it's unfair. I think it's wrong. I think it misses the point entirely to call Joseph a tattletale. And here's why. Number one, and here's our comparison with Jesus. I'm going to give you several things about Joseph. This compares with the way Jesus lived his life. Number one, Joseph was concerned with the things of his father. Joseph was concerned with the things of his father. Let me ask you, when did it become a negative thing for a child to be interested in their parents' wishes? When did that happen? Because in the world in which we live today, that is often very much the case. For a child to to be obedient, especially when they get into their teen years. You don't want as a teenager to let your friends see and you obey your parents, at least not all the time. Maybe some of the time when your parents turn your back, the best thing is to kind of let your friends know, now I get away with things sometimes too. (laughs) They don't know everything that I do. Why has that happened? If you do a sociological study, it's interesting that we are the first country in modern history to have teenagers. There never really was a thing until America came along. There were children and there were adults. And at some point you hit adulthood. But there wasn't this transition period. As a matter of fact, even in America, this transition period didn't appear until around the 1950s. When suddenly teenagers began to be seen as a social group in and of themselves. And why? (laughs) Well, because as a subculture, man, they drive our media and they drive our marketplace. Now, it's not their fault. I'm not blaming those of you who are teenagers. It's not a bad thing. It's just that people who make money, the big money makers, the MTV people, by the way, are not at all interested in what is good for teenagers. They could care less. They just know they can make a buck off of young minds. Plenty of money is to be made from teens. The amount of money that teens now have to spend on an annual basis is staggering. It's frightening. Gang, youth sells. Youth sells and America is buying. But here Joseph shows us something, and those of you who are teens would be, do well to listen to this. Joseph puts a higher value on his relationship with his father than his relationship with his brothers. And so did Jesus. Child to parent, teenager to parent, son to parent. And Joseph is 17 years old here. 17 years old when he goes back to dad and says, my brothers are acting wickedly. He didn't have to do it. And he didn't do it because he was a mama's boy tattletale. No, he went to his father because he was obedient to his father. His father was of value to him. And he put a higher emphasis on his father's wishes than on his brother's wishes. And that is so important to understand. Jesus did the same thing. Matthew chapter 12 verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. He said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, 
He is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus' whole entire earthly life was centered around his father. God's will was of paramount importance to Jesus. It was A number one and nothing else, nothing else, even his own earthly mother Mary was not in the running when it came to his father. Dad is number one, Jesus would say. John 5.19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. John 14.31, Jesus said, But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father has commanded me. Jesus was so aligned with his dad, with his father, that he wouldn't even act outside of God's will. That he did nothing that he didn't see the Father already doing. And he did exactly what God commanded him all the way down to Gethsemane when he said, Your will. Your will, Father, and not mine. Now, Joseph, like Jesus here, is not concerned with what his brothers may think. What he's concerned with is his father's flock. He's concerned with the sheep who belong to his dad. And again, Jesus is the same way. John chapter 10 verse 27 tells us, Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Joseph placed a high emphasis on his father. He was concerned with the things of his father, and so was Jesus. Joseph had to know his brothers would be mad at him, but he cared more about what his father was concerned with than he did about his brothers. By the way, that kind of father love will elevate your love for your brothers and your sisters and your family to a higher place than just people pleasing. If we put God first in our lives, if we put our father number one, a number one in our life, it will impact our family and friend relationships in dramatic ways. And suddenly we won't be living a life just to please those people around us, but we'll be doing what is best for those people around us, loving them in the way that the Father loves us. The more you love the Father, the more concerned you will be about His flock. And His flock will come to be a number one in your life. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Again, that's actually a coat with sleeves. Those of you who didn't hear that on Sunday, the coat was not a big, bright, colorful coat. The word for multicolored here is pas, which means palms. And it was a coat that had sleeves, which was unusual in the Middle East in those days. Most of the coats did not. The coat with sleeves indicated someone in authority, a boss. As a matter of fact, they even had little ties that they could cinch off at the sleeves. I mentioned on Sunday that they would carry things in the sleeves. And they could tie off and tighten up the sleeves so that whatever they were carrying could go right in there. And they were like big pockets on the side of the coat. And someone who would be like a construction uh, foreman or someone who was in charge of things could keep important parchments in the sleeves. That's what they did. Well, here's another similarity to Jesus. Number two, Joseph was hated by his brothers. Verse 4 says the brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Joseph was hated by his brothers. And for no just cause. 
He, he didn't require, he didn't ask for the coat, he didn't do anything, it was given to him. And yet his brothers hated him for it. And Jesus was also hated by his brothers. John chapter 1 verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. His own people, the people of Israel. Jesus was a Jew. It's so funny today that, that people don't remember that or recall that, that he was born a Jew, born a child of Israel, born into the Jewish people and lived a Jewish life all the way up to his crucifixion. The very night before his crucifixion, he was celebrating Passover. He was a Jew through and through, and yet the Jewish people rejected him. His own brothers and sisters hated him to the point of his own death. And Jesus' own people also rejected his authority. Jesus would later say in John 15, 18, and then down in 25, he'd say, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You know, we need to not pass over that verse too quickly. I want you to hear the pain that has to be felt when you say something like that. Jesus is preparing his disciples, preparing actually anyone who would follow him, that it's not always going to be easy. That if you truly seek to follow me, people are going to hate you for it. But then he adds this one line, they hated me first. He knows, he recognizes, he felt the pain of rejection and hatred. And if you think you felt it in your life, Jesus did first. And Jesus did all the more. Verse 25 of John 15, he said, They have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law, quote, They hated me without cause. So Joseph was hated by his brothers. Verse 5, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheep rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheep. And then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's brothers are saying, you're not going to be our boss. You're not going to be in charge of us. And here again we see a picture of Jesus. And Joseph was hated by his brothers, but number three, Joseph's authority was rejected. His authority was rejected. When Jesus was standing before Pilate in John chapter 19 verse 15, Pilate did something brutal, and we'll look actually a little closer at it in a minute. But after he brings out this brutalized Jesus before the people, he says to them, in trying to get Jesus off, I mean, I really believe Pilate was trying it because he saw him as innocent. This was not a man that deserved to be killed. And so this brutalized Jesus is standing there, and Pilate said, Hey, shall I crucify your king? And what did the Jewish people say? We have no king but Caesar. Oh, we don't have a king. These are the same people who a day before, a week before, months before, were constantly fighting for their freedom from Rome. So that they wouldn't be under the yoke of Rome's oppression. And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. We reject the authority of this man. He is not our king. Jesus is not our king. And again, when I think about that, it raises the issue of lordship for our lives. And we have to answer the question, is Jesus my king? I love the thought of him as my savior. The one who swoops in and saves my life, rescues me, keeps me from going to hell. I like that part of it, but the lordship part, that's more difficult. Because with lordship come commands and demands and expectations and challenges. Is Jesus 
the king of my life? Is he my Lord? Do I serve him as the absolute authority over me, or, or am I rebelling against authority? Am I saying, no, I don't need the authority. I'm going to do it my way, God. I appreciate the salvation and I'll see you in heaven. But until then, I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. Folks, the Bible tells us that we have kind of two choices of people to fear or be in awe of or respect as authority in our lives. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's one choice. You can fear the Lord, and the Bible says if you do, if you hold Him in esteem, in awe, if you respect Him as your King and Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. And you're going to find in your life a wisdom that you cannot find anywhere else. Certainly not in the science books. Certainly not in the universities. You find true wisdom when God is your King, when you fear Him. But there's another fear that you can have as well. Proverbs 29:25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom, but the fear of man brings a snare. Oh, I don't fear any man. Truth is, you're either fearing the Lord or you're fearing man. You're either living your life for the Lord or you're living your life for man, for a person or for people. But you will be in, under authority. Do you realize that? We think that we can break the yoke of authority. Our rebellious hearts say, no, I can stand alone. And the truth is, we never do. You are either serving mankind's interests or you are serving the Lord. And if you fear the Lord, it's the beginning of, the wisdom, of wisdom. You fear man, it brings a snare. So what's it going to be for you? Savior and Lord? Just Savior? Joseph, well, his brothers could care less about his authority. They didn't fear him. They thought very lowly of him in the same way that Jesus was treated. Genesis 37, verse 9. Now, he had still another dream. And he related it to his brothers, and he said, Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and said to him, What's this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. I think it's so fascinating the way that's phrased. After initially rebuking Joseph, Jacob kept the saying. Old Jacob is processing as a parent. And Jacob here reminds me an awful lot of Mary. Of Mary, Jesus' mother. You may recall in Luke chapter 2 verse 19, after the shepherds come in and they see baby Jesus, and they tell everybody about the angel's song. And people are amazed. And wow, you saw angels glorifying God because of this child. And it tells us in Luke 2.19 that Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She didn't understand, but she kept the sayings. Luke 2.49, after discovering 12-year-old Jesus, after three days in the temple. By the way, do you realize he was there three days? This wasn't just an afternoon. I don't know what Jesus was doing for three solid days. At 12 years old, his parents leave Jerusalem, they're headed home in the big caravan, and they find out for three days he's missing. And when they find him, he's been in the temple the whole time. Now, did he take his meals there with the scribes and the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Did they give him a little pallet to sleep on at night? What was he doing for three days? The Bible tells us he was blowing their minds. This 12-year-old kid was blowing them away with his knowledge, his understanding, his passion, his insight into biblical things. Well, of course, he's the Word of God. But they were amazed by him. And it's so funny to me, Mary and Joseph come in and it's like, Young man, what in the world do you think you're doing? And in that moment, realizing he's surrounded by all the leaders of the temple. 
And not because they're teaching him. You get the picture of Jesus standing up and they're all gathered around there furiously taking notes and writing down. Wow, he's really good. That's really good. I'm going to use that in Sunday's message, you know? And they say, What are you doing, Jesus? Luke 2.49, he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Isn't this the logical place to find me? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Now that's important. Mary and Joseph didn't get it. He's 12 years old now. Now in 12 years, I'm sure they saw some interesting things. You know, Jesus and his friend making mud pies and Jesus' pie is actually edible. I don't know. All the stuff that happened in those 12 years, but they still don't get it. They don't understand what's going on here. And it says, verse 51, Luke chapter 2, He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. What's the point of all this? The point is this. There is a great way to deal with scriptures you don't understand. Tuck them away in your heart. Ponder them. Keep the same. Don't dismiss them out of hand. That's so easy for people to do. They'll, they'll look at the scripture and go, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's just dumb. And off they go. As opposed to saying, Wait a minute. I don't get it. I don't understand. And tucking it in your heart and going back to it and visiting it time and time again. Keeping the same. Revisiting the same. Tucking it away. Psalm 119, verse 9. Another great verse, especially for teens. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Parents, when your kids ask, what's the best way to keep sin from sinning? How, how can I best be wise about right and wrong? You say, tuck the word in your heart. Read the Bible. Study it with your kids. Share it with them. And together, tuck God's word into your hearts. Now, why would Joseph share these dreams with the boys? Because number four in our list, just like Jesus, number four, Joseph speaks the truth regardless of popularity. Regardless of popularity. Joseph tells it like it is. Jesus was the same way. Now, I'm slowly starting to figure this out as a teacher. That is the responsibility to share truth, to let the chips fall where they may, to say, this is what the Bible says, this is it, folks. And it's not my fault. <laughs> this is truth. And we have determined, purpose, that the British Christian Fellowship would be a place where we let the Bible speak, even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if we don't like what we're hearing, even if it shows us things that we might politically or culturally or socially disagree with. If it's scripture, it's truth. Uh, last week after we, we talked, I, I spent a few moments talking about Israel and the Muslim nations and the contrast. And I talked about the contrast between Islam and Christianity. And I said some harsh things about Islam. I said that Islam is basically, and I'll say it again tonight, basically it is a religion that is a one-way ticket to hell. That Allah is not Jehovah. They are two separate gods. One is a loving, merciful God who gives grace, and by His grace alone we are saved. The other one says, you're lucky if you make it into heaven at all. <laughs> I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if your good works outweigh your bad, and if they don't, you're going straight to hell. And even at the last moment, Allah would say, even at the last moment, I can decide you're not going. Allah, an angry, warring God who says, kill the infidel. It's in the Quran. Someone doesn't believe, kill them. Whereas Jesus died for the infidel. Jesus was killed for those who had not even yet 
believe. Very, very, very stark contrast between the two. We talked about that last week, and, and a guy who was visiting came up to me and said, well, I was a little uncomfortable with what you had to say about Islam. Uh, I, I didn't like really what you were sharing, and uh, I, I need to at least say this much. He said, we have to be very careful as Christians not to hate Muslims, and I agree 100%. We should not hate Muslims. I don't hate Muslims. I hate Islam. And I believe God hates Islam. Why? Because again, it is a damning religion. And folks, if we play the game of downplaying the differences between Christianity and Islam or any other religion, if we downplay the differences in favor of unity, what we are doing is securing people's place in hell. We're saying we don't love you enough to share the truth that can save you. Instead, we'd rather be comfortable and unified and you believe whatever you want, even though when Jesus comes, we'll never see you again. It's not fair. It's not right. It is not love. Because love speaks the truth. Love tells it as it is. And again, any of you who are parents understand that. There are times where you have to say to your sons, to your daughters, this is the way it is. I don't care if you don't like it. This is truth. Deal with it. Love does that. Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine. Do you hear what he's saying? That's not the way to be. Whatever you want to believe, believe it. We'll just kind of hang together in one vast global community. No. He says, we're not to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So I would say to you tonight, love someone enough, love a Muslim enough not to accept their religion. Not to accept that which is lies. Love enough to speak the truth. Now, something that's interesting about these two dreams of Joseph, something to note here, I said on Sunday these dreams have a dual nature in that they indicate what's coming in Joseph's life, but they also illuminate what's coming in Jesus' reign. They indicate Joseph's coming life, but they illuminate what is coming in Jesus' reign. Now think about this. This is interesting to me. He dreams about sheaves, which are basically wrapped up piles of wheat. And he dreams about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Number one, the sheaves in dream number one speak of the world's resources. Speak of the world's resources. But the sun, moon, and stars in the second dream speak of the world's rulers. Joseph dreams about the world's resources and the world's rulers. The resources, those things that feed and, and care for our physical needs. And the rulers, those who reign over us in the physical world. And both the resources and the rulers will bow, will be subject to Jesus when he comes. Flip in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It's just an awesome, awesome psalm. It's one of my favorite ones, especially in an election year. And if you're stressed out or worried one way or the other about what's going to happen and who's going to be leading this country, just understand what the psalmist says here. When he's talking about literally the reign of God's anointed one, he's talking about the reign of Jesus to come. Listen to what he says, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings or presidents of the earth 
take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We'll pause there. Cords like marriage as an institution. Let's cast that off. Things like God in the public schools. We don't need that. Let's remove the fetters that change those things that bind us. Let's get it out. Let's separate church and state. What does God do? I love this. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord stops at them. When the Lord sees what's going on, gang, he looks and says, That's ridiculous. You think you can take me out of your public school? You all have heard this, but as long as there's homework, there's going to be prayer in the public school. <laughs> the reality is whether you write God's name into a school's charter or not, God is there as long as there's one Christian student. God's there. He is moving. You cannot take God out of this country. He's here. And He is doing His will. Verse 5 says, He will speak to them in His anger. And He will terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son, and today I have begotten you. Who is He talking about here? Jesus, you're my son, my only begotten son. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, O presidents, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, literally kiss the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The world's resources, the world's rulers, it's all going to be at the feet of Jesus. Paul said, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. On heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess Jesus. Those who right now say there is no Jesus, those who right now rebel against the existence of God, they're going to bow. They will take a knee. And they will confess that He is Lord. Unfortunately, at that point, if they haven't confessed it before, it's not going to do any good. But they will recognize truth, finally, for what it is. Verse 12 in Genesis 37. Flip back there. 